You are listening to a Nerd Room Podcast, a member of the Star Wars Commonwealth Podcast Network. Be sure to check out more from the Star Wars Commonwealth on the web at StarWarsCommonwealth.com and take your first steps into a larger world. Hey everyone and welcome to Nerd Room. We talk all things Star Wars, Marvel, and DC. This is episode number 142, we're discussing a Falcon and Winter Soldier team-up series and how the MCU differs from the comic books. I'm your one and only host for this evening, Tim. My dudes, Sanjay and Troy, are out of the office. Unfortunately, life happened and both my dudes weren't able to make the recording this evening. So I'm going at this once again solo, but I'm excited to be here to discuss... This week in Nerd. There's been quite a bit of Star Wars news and some brand new news that just landed on my lap. Kyle over at Something Saver tweeted this at me as I was hooking up the equipment to start recording. But there's information coming out that we're going to get a Falcon and Winter Soldier team up mini series, limited mini series on the Disney streaming service. And I'm going to get in that a little bit later on. But I have to say, right out the gate, my initial reaction. I am super, super stoked for this. Cannot wait to see what they're going to deliver with these two characters. And another topic I'm going to tackle here on my own is it's actually a question from Grabs that had me quite intrigued and I never really thought a ton about. And that's how the MCU itself differs from its comic book origins. Yes, we have 70, 60, 70 years of source material that they can pull from, but adapting something from comic book to film does take some slight tweaking and I'm going to talk about how some of the major tweaks in the MCU for film differ from what we see in the comic book iteration. They're always going to pull from this source material. There's a lot to get through and I'm going to just discuss a few things like Vision, Civil War and just really how they differ answering Grab's question here. So it's going to be a relatively shorter episode here. I don't have again my guys in here giving their input on things but I'm going to try to walk you through some of the high level Star Wars and Marvel news as well walk you through my weekend nerd i've had a relatively exciting week again and i'm going to jump right into that as we always do at the top of this show now we talked last week troy and i in a bit of detail about daredevil season three i was about halfway through it and troy was about three quarters away through it we both expressed our enjoyment for it and how much we're liking this series relative to some of the other Netflix series that have been delivered in that Marvel world. Now, Daredevil Season 3, I'm up to Episode 10 at this point. Finished Episode 10, so i got two episodes to go. And i got to say, going from last week to this week, I'm as equally enthusiastic about this show. There's a major twist in around Episode 7 or 8 that had me watching this, binge-watching this well into the early hours of the morning, 1 o'clock in the morning on a work day, and I don't usually ever do that but I had to consume as much of this as possible. The story really builds really quick towards the back half of the season. After about episode six, like they're all really good episodes, but once you hit that major twist and you'll know it when you see it, everything just fires up. And that whole story, the narrative, the way that it's pushing in the direction it's going, I've got two episodes left. I'm excited to get to them. But if you guys aren't watching this, it's a high, high recommend. Yes, you do need to go back and watch one and two or seasons one and two to really get the full perception of it all. But this to me is, again, it's a nice, in almost a way, it's, it's kind of capping this off as a nice trilogy. 
you know, it's it's gone in a very different direction here. And, you know, I, I discussed last week about how it was a Matt Murdock story, and it still very much is. And I can appreciate everything they're doing here. But the standout is the Kingpin. And I say Kingpin specifically because this is an one of the ultimate, one of the best villains that has ever been put to screen in the MCU or whatever we're calling this, the MCU adjacent universe. If we don't see this character in the MCU proper, it's going to be a real shame to have him go toe to toe with Spider-Man, to have him interact with other characters from the MCU. It's absolutely unreal what they've done in this season. And I cannot praise it highly enough. Get out there and check out Daredevil season three. Now, if any of you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that I did a different style of hunt this week when I was looking for action figures. I actually took to Kijiji, and that's something that I normally don't do. I have never bought really anything off Kijiji, not because I don't like the service or whatever. It's just I've never found myself looking for used items or whatever. But I found myself wandering around on there not too long ago looking for out-of-the-box Marvel Legends. And I decided, hey, you know, if I can find something where I'm not paying a, a mailing fee or a postage fee and I can get a little bit of a discount on an action figure, then I'm probably game for it. I stumbled across something that was really great though. A, a local guy, he actually wasn't too far from my home, he had up the three Kmart exclusives. Now we don't have Kmart here in Canada, so a lot of these we were unable to get to. It was the Kylo Ren and Rey Starkiller bases and the Sar Sergeant Jin Urso on Edu. She's got the goggles. She's up on a rock. These are kind of deluxe sets. So they have a, a sculpted base that goes with them. And actually, the Rey and Kylo face off against one another. So it's kind of a really cool setup. And they're Black Series figures. But I was able to snag these for about $15 each. And being that they're exclusives that I've never seen in Canada, with the exception of the Rey Starkiller base. And the fact that... They're deluxe sets. I'm getting them for about 15 bucks. Huge score. I'm extremely pleased with the pickup this week. I bought all three of them off the guy, and they're going to take a prominent position here in the nerd room. I like these deluxe sets, but I like the price point even more. $15. I don't know exactly what these sold for in Kmart, but they look to be probably around that $39, $45 price tag here in Canada, being that the deluxe sets, usually that's about what they go for. Comparatively, maybe the Gamorrean Guard that's been put out more recently, that was upwards of 40 some odd dollars. So I got a heck of a deal on these three action figures go check out my twitter i've put them up there and kajiji now seems like a bit more of a viable place for me to go look there isn't a ton of stuff locally here in calgary that's up there but every once in a while if something if someone's selling stuff or moving or downsizing their nerd room this seems to be a nice place to maybe get some of those harder to find figures in Canada. Some of the exclusives that people have brought back from cons or have you know done the shopping themselves down in the States and trying to offload some of this. So if you guys haven't checked locally your Kijiji stores, I'd go I'd go do that. It is kind of, you know, to me, it's, it's a different style of hunt. You're doing it the same way on eBay. You're looking for something very specific. It may or may not be there. It may or not be the right price. But there was an interesting element of the hunt that I was able to complete and I had never really experienced before. So I'm going to continue to, to use Kijiji to find some of those maybe harder to find figures, the exclusives that I'm not necessarily finding in the stores. And to cap my week in nerd off, I got to talk a little about the podcast I've been listening to. No, I've 
been fully concentrated on the Star Wars Commonwealth. Everyone out there is absolutely killing it. But I took a small break for the last four or five days, and I talked about this last week, about Serial. Now, it's a podcast coming from This American Life, and I'm sure a lot of you have listened to it. I'm kind of behind the game here, actually. I just finished season one. The storytelling ability and the podcast format they use for that is something that I personally absolutely love, and I want to try to find a way to replicate for something else. Taking that style of storytelling and evolving it or molding it into something that fits more into the framework of the nerd room. So this is an idea I'm kind of kicking around. I don't know exactly what I want to do with it, but I've been quite inspired by Serial itself and then the way they've been able to construct a narrative across the podcasting platform. It seems relatively unique to me. It's less opinion-based and more factual-based, which I really thought was interesting. So I'm trying to find a way that I can leverage that and maybe we can cook up something a little bit different here. But if you haven't experienced Serial and you want to step just sideways from maybe the nerd world, Star Wars, Marvel, whatever, go check out Serial. It's, it's interesting and the, I guess the more difficult part about it is that it's it's based in real life, based in fact, and a lot of research has been done. I think a year's worth of research to put together a 10 or 12 episode or season of a podcast. Really well done. Production value is awesome. So get out there and try something a little different. That was my step. I believe Mark Godseff recommended that to me, or at least some form of that. And I'm happy I did step away from kind of this this little bubble I've been in for the last three or four years and experienced something a little different. I'm always going to fall back to, to the Tumbling Saber, Talk Star Wars, everyone in the Star Wars Commonwealth. But doing something a little different just gave me a fresh perspective on the podcasting format and how maybe we can use that type of storytelling, that type of narrative building to do something a little different. So get out there and check out Serial. High, high recommend. All right, guys, I'm going to swing over to the news for this week. Again, it's going to be a relatively condensed episode, but I just want to talk at the top of the episode here about John Williams. You know, I'm really happy to say that reports have come out that after he did fall ill and was hospitalized last week and had to drop out of a concert, that he is on the mend. He is on the path to recovery. I don't know much of the details here, and I can't really find a whole lot, but we do know he is on his way back to Los Angeles and looking forward to a speedy recovery. Now, John Williams being the man that has scored every single episodic Star Wars from every single saga film, someone that has put together and composed some of the greatest scores of all time, if not the greatest scores of all time. And to hear him, you know, this was originally, I saw it pop up on the Star Wars Commonwealth Twitter DM feed. And someone just put out there, did you hear about John Williams? And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, he has passed away. Because I think he's pushing 90 at this point. You know, the first thing that, that came to my mind was, we're, we're losing a legend here. The second thing, and I don't mean to be selfish about this, but I'm thinking, I really want to see John Williams finalize this, this saga score. I don't want episode nine to continue without him. It really does worry me. And I'm concerned for his his well-being as well as his work. I want to see him finish this, this kind of lifelong commitment to scoring Star Wars. And then having that, that baton passing, that torch passing after episode nine, after I think he's even scoring some things for Galaxy's Edge. So he's got, he's, there's a lot 
that he still wants to contribute to this universe, but it has to be done when he is in a healthy state of mind, a healthy physical state as well. So all the best to John Williams, and I know he's probably got the best of care, major support system, but I'm really happy to hear that he's been cleared of this illness, or at least is on the mend, on the way to recovery, and that he'll be back at it in the not-too-distant future. This guy seems to just pound through these scores and do it almost in his sleep. Everything that he's produced right from A New Hope right through to episode eight has, in my opinion, been absolutely fantastic. A a pure character in the Star Wars film itself. So, John Williams, all the best. Can't wait to hear what you put together for us next. And I hope you have a speedy recovery. Now, sticking with Star Wars this week, the Boba Fett film. Now, a film that has never really officially confirmed, was rumored to have been in development under Josh Trank's guidance, who was subsequently let go. And then there's this reports that James Mangold, director of Logan, was hopping onto the project. It looks like it's been put permanently on the back burner. Again, it's hard to put a film that was never officially confirmed onto the back burner. But Kathleen Kennedy, she was hosting an Oscar event for Black Panther with Ryan Coogler. And a Deadline Hollywood reporter, uh, I believe by the name of Eric Weber, asked her a few quick questions and posted that onto Twitter. And it was later picked up by Anthony Bresnikan of EW. So they reported that she quickly just said that that is on the back burner and their focus is purely on The Mandalorian. Now, for me personally, a Boba Fett film, sure, I'm on board for it. Do I want something a little different in the form of this Mandalorian series? I think so. If you had to ask me one or the other, The Mandalorian for me, and again, not knowing at all what it's about other than the fact that we've got Jon Favreau helming this with some great directors attached to it and a story that happens post-Return of the Jedi with an unknown character. Yeah, I'm still going into that camp. The Boba Fett film for me, either under Josh Trank or James Mangold, I was never I was never against, but I was never fully on board with did we need to explore that character in any more detail. They go into his backstory in the prequels through the Clone Wars. We do see his story seemingly come to an end in Return of the Jedi. How are they going to fill that in? Is he going to crawl out of the Sarlacc pit? I'm happy that they're just going to leave that character, leave some some mystery to that character maybe and explore something a little different here. So Coming back to it all here, you know, Kathleen Kennedy confirming that it is indeed dead or not existing anymore on the back burner and their focus is on the Mandalorian. I think that's the right place to put their efforts. The Mandalorian, at least for me, is something I'm extremely excited about. And it's another piece of this somewhat elusive Disney streaming service that is slowly coming together here. You know, we're going to talk or I'm going to talk a little bit about this Winter Soldier Falcon series. We've got this Mandalorian Star Wars series, the Clone Wars, a lot of it's starting to come together, but we just don't have the framework of it, it seems. We're getting bits and pieces here. So I'm looking forward to see how they roll all this out, how we're going to get trailers for this. Are we going to get a proper trailer for The Mandalorian? And are we going to get it anytime soon? Probably not. Probably not until well into 2019. But again, it's a nice thing that Kathleen Kennedy's putting her full support behind this Mandalorian. And again, it goes a little bit to this idea that Bob Iger had communicated not too long ago about slowing down Star Wars. And you know, there's a lot of different projects on tap right now. And do we need to have these these solo adventures 
on film now that they have a Disney streaming service they can provide a different type of forum for that consumption of episodic smaller characters I think that's the right place to do stuff like this do we need to have a Rogue One or Solos type of film on screen maybe maybe not I'm liking the idea of the bigger event style of films taking up the big screen and filling in those holes these Star Wars stories or these anthology type of TV shows or stories into the Disney streaming service is going to keep me hooked and plugged into the streaming service, but it's also going to allow us to, you know, consume these at different rates. If we want to do it fast, if we want to do it slow, and it allows us to pick and choose a little bit more and maybe not have that overriding pressure of the billion dollar performances out of Star Wars films. You know, we saw a lot of criticism go to Solo because it was a quote-unquote box office failure. The thing did still do pretty well, and it's a fantastic film, but you take that and you place that into a streaming service, I think you have a much better forum and a much better format to present those style of stories and do the big films on screen. So I'm really looking forward to, to what comes next for Star Wars on the streaming service, for Marvel on the streaming service. But The Mandalorian, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I'm super excited for this. This different type of consumption of Star Wars, something that I don't know if they're going to do it once a week or a bit more like into your Netflix where you're binge watching this, the consumption all at once. Nonetheless, Mandalorian, huge thumbs up for me. Cannot wait for this. Now, sliding over to Star Wars collecting for a little bit here, Hasbro was present at two cons this past weekend, and they continue to roll out their Black Series. We've seen this over the year, usually, at least in the last few years, we saw the major reveals in February at New York Toy Fair, followed up by New York Comic Con and San Diego Comic Con. That's when we got our big reveals. But they've seemingly spread this across numerous cons, releasing one or two figures per con. So there's London Comic Con 2018 and a Paris Comic Con as well. Now, released at the London Comic Con was the first look at the six inch black series Battle Droid. Now, this is a really cool figure. I can honestly say battle droids for me are something that I have a bit of a fond memory. I really enjoyed the Phantom Menace when it came out. I was listening to Tumbling Saber earlier today and Kyle was talking about the early release battle droid figure. I have that figure here in the nerd room and I absolutely love it. It's something, it's one of the first Star Wars Phantom Menace, if not the first Star Wars Phantom Menace figure I ever got. And I just, I, I still have it to this day. I wish I didn't throw the box out, but the battle droid figure in itself i have a little bit of a connection to because it was the first figure i got in that, that phantom menace run it started the hype for me that was really when i started to get into star wars collecting coming off the back end of the power of the force 2 and this was my first experience with a brand new star wars film and brand new star wars action figures in stores so when i look at this battle droid all i can think about is 13 year old me picking the other battle droid up and being like wow this is incredible i love this i can't wait to see what happens next so from a pure nostalgic perspective that battle droid is going to be in my collection it looks pretty good the sculpt looks great hasbro is always killing it when it comes to droids when it comes to aliens mass figures the sculpting is is just fantastic and they're actually really starting to hit their stride 
with the human likeness as well. They also released for, again, for my dude, Kyle over Tumbling Saber, a Chewbacca, the vintage collection. Great stuff. You know, this this vintage collection, I, I've stated in the past that I'm probably not going to get into it, but I'm happy, happy that we're seeing quite a diverse set of figures going into this. You know, spanning, I'm, I don't know if this is a Chewbacca from Solo, if this is Chewbacca from The Force Awakens or The Last Jedi, but nonetheless, it's great to see OT characters getting some of that love in the vintage collection. The card backs look great. I, I cannot knock this for the look. The sculpts are great. The card backs are, are awesome looking. It would look great prominently featured in a nerd room. My problem is the price, price point. $17 a pop. I just can't justify that at this point in time. Now, at the Paris Comic Con, there was a joint panel there with Star Wars Marvel Transformers coming from Hasbro. And the big reveals coming out of there were an Attack of the Clones Padme in her Geonosis gear. Now, this is the white gear that she has pre-getting sliced up uh, in the arena there. And Padme is a figure that I'm surprised after 90 or over 100 Black Series figures that I don't believe we actually have a figure of her. So to me, this is another pickup for me. I, I like the character to a degree. Like I had issues. If you go back and listen to me on the TSW Roundtable, I did review Attack of the Clones. And I had issues particularly with the, the relationship between Padme and Anakin and how that developed. But as a character, seeing the sculpt and what they're doing there, it's, it's going to be another little great pickup. You know, they're going back and giving the prequels a lot of love. We're seeing the Anakin pop back up in the archive collection. They're doing the um, Artie Granoff, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and General Grievous in the deluxe edition. So they're going back and revisiting a lot of that, which I can really, really appreciate. And I'm, I'm quite stoked that they're giving some focus back on that as they go into this bit of a lull before we get the big onslaught of episode nine action figures. We're revisiting and filling in some of those key missing pieces from the prequels and from the original trilogy. You know, we're going to get the Dengar later on in 2019, which will fill that bounty hunter wave. So I'm really pleased with the diversity of characters that we're getting in the Black Series. I've been somewhat rejuvenized by the Black Series with the, the hunt this past weekend, getting these figures for a good price point. The Zuckus getting that and the look at these figures that they're announcing. I, I was pretty down on the Black Series and the price points and all this not too long ago. But I, I feel a huge sense of I'm going to get back into this in a big way in the not too distant future. And this just goes to the idea that collecting ebbs and flows. You're on a roller coaster all the time. You're up, you're down. I'm into Marvel Legends. I'm into Black Series. So I'm actually quite excited. I'm feeling really good about the Black Series walking into 2019. And now another thing that was leaked from one of those Comic-Cons, I'm not too sure which one, it is the official first look or the semi-official first look, if we can call it that, at the design for the card backs for the Archive Collection. Now the Archive Collection is going back and reproducing a few figures that on the secondary market are grabbing upwards of $100. So they're producing Anakin Skywalker, Boba Fett, Luke Skywalker, X-Wing Pilot, Bosk, IG-88, a scout trooper without the bike, and Yoda. So these are all figures that I actually fortunately do own in the original card backs, in the orange and blue card backs for some of these. And the look of the card backs for these figures they're blister packs so they're kind of your more conventional three and three quarter inch look similar to what they did with the six inch black series for the vintage 
40th anniversary line that they did. I'm not loving these, if I'm being completely honest with you guys. I was slightly taken aback by the look at them. You go, the Black Series is gone from the beginning in this very rectangle box, big open window. They've gone in the Deluxe Series with some posability. This is very much your bulk standard three and three quarter inch figures in the blister packs. The rifle's not packed up by their heads. It just doesn't seem... I don't know what it is about it. It just, to me, it doesn't seem like a a properly scaled Black Series figure. The blister packs for the vintage, the 40th anniversary celebratory line, looked really good to me. I really liked what they did. Something about this just isn't catching me. I don't know if I'm the only one. I'd love to hear you guys' opinions on this. But I, I almost feel like they're not designed to be kept in package almost. I, I, I really don't know. I was hoping that they're going to go back and almost reproduce the boxes from the original run because I am missing the Anakin Skywalker. I did misspoke speak there. And I would love that Anakin Skywalker on the orange card back or the orange striped card back from the original Black Series run because that will complete the collection. This is going to stand out. This almost makes the archive seem like a completely different collection where in my mind, the original point of this was so that you didn't have to go to the secondary market to find or complete your collection. You could do that right here with the archive. Now, I'd be okay with them putting archive on the side, on the back, but having the look of it, at least in display, being the same was a bit more important to me. This, it feels like a separate collection, and that may also be by design so that you have collectors who already own the Bosque or the IG-88. They can go out and grab these as a separate archive collection. So we'll see. I'm, I'm, I I don't know what I'm going to do here because I want that Anakin, but it doesn't complete my collection, which kind of defeats the purpose for me. I'd rather go to the secondary market and hopefully grab it for, I don't know, 40, 50 bucks, a little bit double retail, say and completed my collection where this is, do I have to get all these to complete the collection? Is this a whole another separate collection? I, the, I'm not sure what they're doing here. I guess there's a wait and see. I'm going to have to see how they look when they're swinging from the pegs there. The, the figures, again, like I said, I own most of them, but it defeats the purpose a little bit for me for completing out a collection. If you are an out of box collector and you just need to fill out, say the bounty hunter wave, this is a great way to do it. They're doing it right from that perspective that you can get these figures, pull them out of the blister packs, pose them with the other bounty hunters or whatever, and there you go. Your collection's completed at retail price. But if you're an inbox collector, it kind of jumps away from the, the key point of it all. But we'll wait and see here. I don't want to put too much of a damper on it because they it's a cool idea that they're going back and trying to give people a, a way to get these figures without paying the secondary, the scalper prices. So I can appreciate what they're doing there. Now, guys, I'm going to swing over to discuss a little bit of Marvel. That felt a bit abrupt, but nonetheless, I got to get over and talk about this Winter Soldier and Falcon team-up limited series that they're throwing around. So Variety is reporting that Empire writer Malcolm Spellman has been hired to write a limited series for this streaming service that will focus on the MCU characters of Winter Soldier and Falcon. Now we saw both of these characters meet their their demise in Avengers Infinity War. So this puts a bit of a question mark on where this is going to take place in the timeline. Sebastian Stan and Anthony Mackie are both expected to reprise the roles here. So a huge set of applause for that. We talked a couple weeks ago about 
the Scarlet Witch miniseries. It may star Vision as well. Uh, a Loki miniseries. I like the idea of this, just picking up, and I kind of referred to it as the one-shots that they had done in the past. And then this, again, likens it a bit more to the comic book world where you can have a, a short, small story told, a condensed story, and just flesh out some of the characters' backgrounds for characters that we might not see get a standalone film. I love the chemistry between Winter Soldier and Falcon. It was great in Civil War, and I'm really looking forward to see what more they can do with these two characters. Both Sebastian Stan and Anthony Mackie are fantastic actors. Like I said, the chemistry both on camera and off camera seems to be quite palpable. And just to see these two characters together, again, it's going to be absolutely fantastic. My biggest question, though, I have is where does this take place in the timeline? Do you have some filler? I guess there's not a lot you can do there, though, because realistically, come Civil War, you have the really Winter Soldier goes to sleep in Wakanda, isn't woken up into Infinity War, and Falcon sticks it out with Captain America. So this has to be post-Avengers Infinity War. There's no time to develop anything unless you're squeezing something very, very minor during the events of Civil War, which I don't think you can realistically do. So this is going to have to be a follow-up to Avengers 4, I guess, when we do have the universe somewhat go back to its normal state. And the other question that that does pose is, what does that mean for the passing of the Captain America mantle? There is an expectation, at least for myself and a good chunk of fandom, that Captain America himself is likely to sacrifice himself in Avengers 4 in some capacity and, and see his character die. And the expectation is, is that either Bucky or Falcon are going to pick up that mantle in a similar fashion to what we saw in the comic books, more recently with Falcon and back on the Brubaker run with Winter Soldier himself. So I like the idea of it. I'm a bit confused of the consequences or what it's implying for the post-Avengers 4 as far as picking up that mantle of Captain America, or if that's just going to be left for a while. Is that going to be picked up in another Avengers film, in Secret Invasion, or something like that, where there is a call for the Avengers and the need for a symbol, and that comes in the form of Bucky or Falcon picking up the mantle of Captain America. But nonetheless, I am very excited to see what they can do with these two, and how much they can actually push this little concept. You know, Kevin Feige is rumored to be heavily involved in this. So him having a hand on producing these is very important to maintain that, that continuous thread of the MCU that he's worked so hard along with his producers and the writers and all that to craft and carve out here. I don't want to see this go the way of say Marvel Netflix or ABC shows where, yeah, we can call it MCU adjacent, but it's not proper MCU. You have these these actors reprising the roles, and you have that that narrative building out from Avengers 4. It's going to be a unique twist on the building and the constructing of the MCU because we're going to walk away realistically for the first time from the films. Now, the early parts of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Netflix do refer to events that happen in the films, but they've always been a bit adjacent. You know, you look at Marvel TV and Marvel Studios under different banners, under different leadership, and they don't have that, that same degree of continuity that we had originally hoped. This It's all connected. Didn't really pan out in the long run for the TV shows. This is an opportunity to use that, that Disney streaming service form again and tell different stories, 
expand the backstory or the foregoing story of two popular characters without having to lay out $150 million for a Winter Soldier film that may not have that same reception that is expected. A TV show like this, it's going to drive people to the streaming service, but it's also going to drive us to want more of this. The Scarlet Witch and Vision would be fantastic. I'm even looking forward to the Loki. I think that they can do no wrong on the streaming service when they're focusing in on keeping and maintaining that continuity that's built in the films, but also driving a forward narrative outside of the three films a year. So we're going to get a lot more MCU content than we're even getting now. We're, we're running with the expectation that for the foreseeable future, there's going to be three MCU films a year. Now you layer on, say, a four-episode, five-episode, six-episode miniseries focusing in on particular characters this really starts to rapidly expand that universe and their ability to tell stories in between the films like how cool is going to be when we see winter soldier and falcon come back in avengers 4 they get their tv show they show up in secret invasion or something to that effect or they get their own big spin-off i don't know but it's going to be cool to watch that narrative snake through the different media the same way that Star Wars is doing with the comic books, the TV shows. So they're leveraging a bit of that that know-how from Star Wars to try to expand their storytelling across multiple different forums. And I really, really like that. So looking forward to Winter Soldier and the Falcon. So to cap this episode off this week, I don't really have a huge focus, you know, main topic like we usually do. But Grabs fired me a second question this week, and I chose this one because I started writing about it and I had a lot of fun with it. So what I'm going to do here, I'm going to focus in on the MCU and how it differs from the comic books, just highlighting some of it. But I'm going to use Grabs' question here as, as kind of the foundation for it all and kind of answer it on my own and then leave his other question for next week. So... This question, or the subject of this question, is that's how I remember it. As I'm going to read this as it was written, so it's addressed to the three of us, but I'm going to answer it on my own here. So I hope that's okay, Grabs. As the three of you know, I ask a lot of questions about comics. Believe it or not, I do my own research. I know you do, man. I've recently been researching Ant-Man and looking into buying the best stories he's featured in, and to my surprise, I discovered that it was Hank Pym that created Ultron. Now, I know differences have to happen between books and movies, but this surprised me and has led me to this line of questions. What are each of your favorite differences in the MCU movies in relation to the comics? What are your least favorite? And how many major ones have happened that the average viewer wouldn't know about? Lastly, throwing in all comic book movies, which was the furthest from the source material, and did that alone make the movie bad? Thanks in advance. Grabs. All right, Grabs, I'm going to go at this one solo for this week. I really, really like this question because it got me really thinking about the differences between the comic books and the films themselves. Now, adapting some story from comic book, being a a completely different type of storytelling into a two-hour film can be difficult. But the economic part of the storytelling in the films has to leverage and change different things from the source material naturally. As they're building this through-going narrative, and in the absence of some characters that they can use, i.e. the X-Men or Fantastic Four, they have to replace certain characters 
or overarching arcs or ideas to fit into the universe that they've built. Now, keeping with the cohesive nature of the MCU, this required replacements of characters, as Grab alluded to, like Ultron's creator. You know, in the comic books, it was Hank Pym that created Ultron, not Tony and Bruce. And then in turn, it was Ultron that did create Vision. Now, Vision was originally created in the comic books to kill the Avengers. But him being too human, he kind of saw the error in Ultron's ways and decided that he would side with the Avengers. And the crystal in his head wasn't the Mind Stone. It was, in fact, some Control Stone. So what they've done with Vision, they've kind of paralleled his overall development being a creation of Ultron from the comic books to the films. But the difference, the big difference here is the Mind Stone, the Infinity Stone. So they've adapted a nice way, I think at least, in Age of Ultron with Vision to incorporate an Infinity Stone into the overall narrative of it. They're building this much bigger arc and they needed a way to fit in Vision, to fit in the Infinity Stone. And I think they did that really well. So this is a great example of taking that source material and evolving it and adapting it in a way that it fit an overarching arc. So I feel that, you know, for me, the creation of Vision and Ultron, it made a lot more sense in the MCU to be a creation of both Tony Stark and then in turn the Vision and then fitting in that Infinity arc in there. So I really like, that's one of my favorite ones actually, is that I was, I was a bit stuck on the idea originally that Hank Pym had to be the creator. And even going back to Hank Pym's introduction into this universe. Now, Hank Pym himself was one of the original Avengers along with the Wasp. Now, when we got the original Ant-Man film, and Grabs don't hate me for this, I was questioning the need for Scott Lang in that role, being the Ant-Man that we're seeing in modern day. I was a bit disappointed that we weren't getting Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne as the Ant-Man and Wasp that were eventually going to team up with the Avengers proper in Captain America, Hulk, and Thor and all that. So that was one that on the onset, I was like, I really wish they had a young Hank Pym. But as that story has evolved, I found myself liking it more and more. You know, the fact that Hank and and Janet Van Dyne had some connection to S.H.I.E.L.D. and to Tony's father. Again, that's a little different than we do see in the comic books, being that Hank Pym and the Wasp were part of the original Avengers. They were in Avengers number one, teaming up with the Hulk or teaming up with Thor and Iron Man to chase down the Hulk at um, that was under the control of Loki. So I felt myself really not loving that. But now Scott Lang and Paul Rudd's portrayal of him and what we got in Ant-Man of the Wasp with Avenging Lily as the Wasp herself, Hope Van Dyne, and then also bringing in Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne into the mix and having them be an older version of Ant-Man and the Wasp Again, I thought it was really cool. You know, it's it's interesting that they went that path, and I'm not sure exactly the decision making behind it, but I like it. I like how they how they've changed that story and used the modern version of Ant Man. I believe he debuted and grabs me up to correct me on this Avengers 168. So he's a character that's been around for a long time, but the direction they went on the onset, it didn't to me it didn't make logical sense. But I'm happy that they did that. I'm happy that we're seeing. Ant-Man, and that portrayal by Paul Rudd, maybe it was more about the character 
of or the, the the want to use a character that, that was a bit goofier, a bit more on the comedic side as they developed this film. I don't know if that originally came from Edgar Wright or if that was later on kind of pushed by Peyton Reed and twisted into an overall kind of comedic heist film using Paul Rudd, the, the comedian that can also do the action flick. Now, one of my favorites, absolute favorites here for changing from comic books to the MCU has to be Jarvis. Now, Jarvis in the original run all the way up until more recent comics was not an AI. Jarvis was a butler, a real butler. You know, there's a cover somewhere where he is holding a vacuum and it says the only Avengers left or something to that effect. So if you even go back to, if you guys have been listening for a little while, I, uh, I've been doing the Marvel Unlimited where I've gone back to 2004. He is still a prominent figure as a butler even up until then. So it was in the film and the development of Iron Man originally where they decided they didn't want people to be confused with Jarvis and Alfred, Batman or Bruce Wayne's butler. So they decided to go AI. And to me, that was a brilliant, absolutely brilliant decision is you bring this AI in, this is voice who eventually turned out to be Paul Bettany that evolves into division, which is another great thing that isn't in the comic books, but the way they're able to adapt that and evolve that and kind of connect those pieces up. It's another great, great adaptation of something that is a little bit different, but this allowed that, that talking and that conversing with Iron Man. The hardest thing to do with Iron Man, at least in the onset, was this idea, this heads-up display. You know, you had to be able to see Robert Downey Jr. and experience that. And the heads-up display really does that. And he has to be able to converse with someone. You can't just have him flying around giving personal commentary on what he's doing. He needs to have someone to banter with. And Jarvis was a great insertion of that. Like it wasn't communicating through an earpiece like we do see in The Dark Knight. This is him bantering with, with an AI. And we do see that evolve later on into Avengers and Avengers Infinity War. So I think that the conversion of Jarvis from a real butler into an AI really fit what they're doing with Iron Man, but it increased and changed that dynamic between the audience watching Iron Man inside of that suit. Outside of that, it, to me, Downey is an actor. He's, he's a, a proper actor. You need to see his facial reactions. You need to see what he's doing inside of that suit, but you also need to have him conversing. So I think that was a great choice on the part of the creators to bring in Jarvis as an AI and not an actual butler. Now, I could walk through these things all day. A few just to highlight a couple more here. Storler's dad going to the Guardians of the Galaxy side of things. In the comics, he's actually an intergalactic emperor named Jason of Spartax. So he doesn't have a celestial father named Eagle the Living Planet. Eagle the Living Planet is, in actuality, a living planet, a face on a planet. So for whatever reason, I don't really know why they've, they've changed this one. And this one I'm kind of sure on the fence with. The celestial part of Star-Lord and the necessity to do that, to me... You don't really have to have a celestial as his father to justify him holding on to the power stone. You know, they, they kind of left this this dangling thread at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 about how he was something different. There's a DNA, an ancient thing that they haven't seen. They could have still have easily went the Jason of Spartax way. And I, I still really liked what they did in Volume 2. But the change of it to be something a bit more, it was 
more or less a moot point because at the end they take all that powers away from him. So they build him up to fight a villain and then at the end they kind of tear it down so that he's on an even playing field going into Infinity War or Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 or whatever. They've taken that power away so he's not this overpowered individual. He can still be on that level playing field and still have to fist fight and can't go up against Thanos and just use his celestial powers to knock him out. So to me, that was a, was a funny choice because it was more self-serving for the plot than anything. And it didn't, to me at least, it didn't fit into a wider idea of, of Star-Lord himself other than we need a villain, Ego's a cool, kind of a cool concept, we need to address this idea of who Star-Lord is, who his father is, and that's kind of where they went. So that was an interesting choice for a change from the comics to film. And that was one that I'd have to say I'm a little bit on the fence about. Now, another one that I am seriously on the fence about, actually, I'm not on the fence. I'm way on the other side of it, is the major retcon of the Mandarin. Now, I'd say retcon because they've gone back and retconned it but in the film. But the change from comic book to film. Now, the Mandarin is Iron Man's Joker. You know, he's the character that... They seeded the idea of an Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2, the 10 rings, the actual rings themselves, for them to step into something that was a bit more mystical, might have been a bit more difficult at that point because the rings themselves are at times sentient. They have their own powers. The power set's a bit ambiguous. Translating that onto screen, I think, would have been very difficult. But even if they just went the path that they did in that film and didn't have this weird twist where it turned out to be Trevor Slattery, an actor, a British actor. If they had it just kept with, and yes, it was maybe walking a very fine line of cultural insensitivity, but the way that it was delivered by Ben Kingsley, the fear that it kind of brought up and what they did with the trailers, it made it seem like this was going to be Iron Man's most difficult or his, his hardest hour as an individual fighting a villain. And then it tore all of that down with this very poorly executed reveal in the Trevor Slattery. So for me, that is probably my least favorite of all the changes that they've made. You know, you can even go to another one that I I actually have no problem with, and that's Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. You know, they're Magneto's kids and they're mutants in the comic books. And they're quite prominent mutants, both in Avengers and in the X-Men. So them not holding that mantle, to me, it didn't really bother me a whole bunch, but it does change the dynamic of the characters and the, I wouldn't say the importance of the characters, but how their powers are rooted in their connection to the X-Men. It was always a bridge between the Avengers and the X-Men in Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. You see that in House of M. And not having that bridge there and I don't, they're not going to retcon this, I don't think, being that we're not going to have the mutants present in the MCU at some point in the not-too-distant future. It's it's kind of a bridge that I don't think they can ever mend, but having them as experiments of Hydra, kind of a cool concept. They're a bit of a result of the Mind Stone themselves, so I do like that in that they've connected Scarlet Witch and Vision more intimately. You know, beyond some relationship of where it's rooted purely in love, they do have a much deeper connection. So I like that about those two characters. And the fact that she's not a mutant doesn't bother me a whole bunch. And Quicksilver, him dying, you know, he's quite a prominent figure 
in the Avengers for a long time. Him dying very quickly, not being a part of the universe, seems to be a consequence of multiple Quicksilvers and not wanting to confuse a larger audience. What's this Quicksilver doing here? This is different than what we're seeing over at Fox. So he seems to be a bit of the collateral damage from this gray area that used to exist between Marvel proper and Fox's Marvel. We're not going to see that anymore. Will we see Quicksilver come back? Probably not. I'm happy for them to continue the way they developed Scarlet Witch and not have her be a mutant. Now, looking at Grabs' last questions here. Of all the comic book movies, what which, or which was the furthest from the source material? And did that alone make the movie bad? Now, a lot of these films, you know, you can look at everything from Civil War to Avengers Infinity War. You know, Infinity War itself is just a title that is a comic book event that has really no resemblance to what we saw on screen. It's more like into, say, your Infinity Gauntlet. And even at that, it's the base concepts of, of Thanos, the Infinity Stones, and the Snap. Those are the big threads that they pull from Infinity Gauntlet because it's quite cosmic. You know, you see Celestials, you see... There's a lot of very trippy Jim Starling writing and, and art in there. And so they, they've they really changed that and moved away from the source material, just keeping the fundamentals. But I think that was done really well. You know, it, it doesn't adapt anything from Infinity War, even Age of Ultron. It's a big event in the comic books done by Brian Michael Bendis. Not a very well-received event at that, but it's in name only. There's zero adaptation of any of the material from the Age of Ultron comic book event compared to Age of Ultron in the story itself. You know, I talked about how Age of Ultron pulled from the origins of, of Ultron himself, the origins of, of Vision. So to me, again, they're pulling the, the main threads from the source material, but not directly adapting anything. If I look over into the X-Men universe, X-Men 1 actually was an original story to a degree. I don't think other than character names, it really pulled from any prominent arc or story that had been previously written in the comic books. And now X-Men itself, the first film that came out in 2000, it's not a stellar film. You go back to it and revisit it, it captures the basic concepts of the X-Men versus Magneto. It doesn't adapt any particular story like they did with Days of Future Past, like they did with the kind of the origin story that they've done, and even with Apocalypse, adapting to a degree the Apocalypse origin and all that. So that, to me, X-Men, and I, you got to give it a pass a little bit because it did come out in 2000. The special effects really don't hold up. And there is there is some semblance of pulling from, from source material, but it, it does move a little bit away from from what we've seen in the past. You know, you can even look at Dark Phoenix Saga. Now, X-Men Last Stand did partially adapt that, and it looks like, in name maybe, or and beyond, X-Men Dark Phoenix is going to try to readapt that as well. That one, again, it didn't really stand up to the source material it was adapting from, and it walked quite a ways away from what we thought we may get or what we maybe should have got. It seemed to try to squeeze multiple larger arcs into a single film and throw in the Phoenix towards the end here. It didn't, to me, That that's, you know, I think universally that's probably one of the 
least recommended X-Men films outside of the Logan origin story. Or not, I shouldn't say Logan. I shouldn't associate with that. The Wolverine origin story. So I'd have to say the X-Men universe is, a, for me at least, a bit of a hit and miss for them adapting source material. You know, taking base concepts, but even through going stories that they've pulled from, they're not as strong as what we're seeing in the MCU and even in the DC extended universe. I'd have to say like the Dark Knight. It, it, it pulls from a, like year one. Like they do that so well in Batman Begins and what they pull from from eventually, I think even in The Dark Knight Rises is really well done. The breaking of Batman's back and this old beat down worn Bruce Wayne. So it, it's to me, there's a lot of really good adaptations out there. There's a few, I, I would have to point more towards the X-Men universe that they didn't stick close enough to the source material or at least pull the right things from the source material to make it a stronger film. But the MCU, you know, they, they've tweaked a lot, but for the most part, I think that what they've pulled in from the source material really does enhance the films while also giving a nice nod to what came before. All right, well, that kind of wraps it up for this week for the Nerd Room. I'm not sure how short this is going to be about 50 minutes, I guess 40 minutes. I kind of went on and on here. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I know the boys will be back in the room next week to discuss. We got some fun actually we're going to do next week. I'm not going to reveal it quite yet, but unless there's a trailer or something, we got kind of a little bit of a round table that we're going to do and something a little bit different than our normal focus on, on a big news segment. We're going to walk around the, the table and do something just a little bit different. So I'm going to leave you with that little tease this week. And I want to shout out to Grabs for, for helping me through this and giving me this question to leverage on or work through as part of the main cast as I'm rocking it solo here. So if you guys would like to be a part of this show, you can always email us at thenerdram at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Facebook. You can always grab us on Twitter. Our handles are at the end of the episode so i really hope that you guys enjoyed the solo run again i'm always open for feedback if there's something you want to see a little different or kind of comments on the style whatever like i said in the past i want to do something a little different maybe something uh, not so much independent but i do like this idea of just spitballing solo so i'm always open to, to feedback and i'd really appreciate that and i guess until next week for the nerd room i'm tim and thank you for entering the Nerd Room. This has been a Nerd Room podcast production. You can find our hosts Tim, Troy, and Sunjay on Twitter at the Nerd RM, Troy the Boy eighty seven, and Sunjabby. For more content from the Nerd Room, check out the NerdRoom.net. Don't forget to subscribe to the Nerd Room on iTunes, Podbean, and YouTube. Be sure to head over to StarWarsCommonwealth.com to find more podcasts in the Star Wars Commonwealth Podcast Network, including Talk Star Wars, Tumbling Saber, Generation X Wing, Rogue Squadron Podcast, Skyrim Podcast, and San Diego Sabers. Follow the Star Wars Commonwealth on Twitter at SW Commonwealth and take your first steps into a larger world.